once again, and welcome to Political Dharma. I'm your genial host, Alan Zundel. In my last episode of this show, I was talking about socialism and spirituality and ended up <laughs> actually at the beginning talking, uh, by the beginning, I mean going to the beginning of a historical story, talking about the American Revolution and the differing views of James Madison and Thomas Jefferson toward democracy. That may seem like, what does that have to do with either socialism or spirituality? And in this show, I hope to move the story forward into the 1800s and the birth of modern socialism. And then probably it will take yet another episode to complete this series where I talk more about spirituality in the 20th century and the role of it in various social movements and uh, new developments in the social scientific study of religion. So let me go back to where I left off in the last episode and just recap what I was saying, which was that at the time of the um, institution of the American Constitution, which was just after the American Revolution, a couple important things happened. And when I talk about the ideas associated with this time period and influential political figures of early America, I'm not trying to make the case that ideas are more important than economic relations in history. Uh, I think that economic relations had a lot to do with the American Revolution as well as the Constitution. And you can see that reflected even in James Madison's writing of the Federalist Number 10, where he talks about how economic conflict and economic interest is driving his desire to back this Constitution. Essentially, he's saying, you know, people are going to want more power and they're going to try to either abolish debts or redistribute property. So very much this was a project of trying to um, keep a working class from taking power within the new political system they had created. And the reason that was a potential problem and soon to become a real problem, actually it was a real problem by that time after the revolution, the constitution, the writing of the constitution and its ratification was a response to democratic movements that were trying to move it greater into economic equality and greater political rights for ordinary working people. So one of the big moves here in terms of ideas was to base political authority not on how God legitimated particular rulers, that is, power flowed from God down to the uh, king and the aristocracy, and then from them they controlled the, uh, the impulses of the ordinary people, made sure they were behaving toward each other in a way that was socially harmonious. And going back to the economic thing, it was a system of exploitation of people who worked the land by people who didn't work the land, but putatively controlled the land in the name of God and govern other people through that religious kind of justification. So they changed the ideology from one in which government authority was based on God and hierarchy to one in which government authority came from the consent, consent of the people. That's what a republic is meant to be, is a government that is based on the consent of the people. Now, in doing that, in making that an aim of the American Revolution, they unleashed a lot of expectations among ordinary people that this the, they were the people, and they should therefore have a greater say in politics, and even using politics to improve their economic position. So the movement from a 
purely political type of equal rights uh, to to engage in political activity. Back then, you didn't even have equal right to vote because you had to own a certain amount of property in a lot of the uh, newly independent states to be able to vote. So there, it was it was an elite structure. They were trying to maintain their control of property and make sure that people who didn't have much property, let alone people who didn't have any at all, were going to use some kind of uh, democratic justification for gaining political power and taking property away from those who had it. So there's a lot of fear of democracy. The idea of democracy and basing consent on the people is going to move from the purely political realm to the economic realm. Okay, So James Madison presents one poll of how you could respond to this, which was that you need to create a political system that can check the power of democracy because he didn't trust the people to uh, have the whole society's interests in heart that they would find themselves in conflict with the people who had done the right thing and uh, gained property through their own efforts. Of course, that was fictional because a lot of the property was gained by grant of the king and subjection of the Native Americans. And on the other hand, Thomas Jefferson was talking about how uh, ordinary people could have more, should have more power and could be trusted because if you gave them some degree of property, they could raise their uh, standards of um, sociability, of social, socially productive activities by working on their property and feeling a pride of ownership, and also through education. So that, um, for example, you founded the University of Virginia. Now, in both cases, this both men represented a, a departure from religion in a number of ways. They not only rejected religious justification for government, but they also thought that religion should be purged of its supernatural elements and, and reduced to its moral dimension, which was the important part to them. They believed a lot more in reason and what they regarded as science at that time and felt that that was overcoming the superstitious and dogmatic influences of Christian, um, Christian theology. So there was, a, first of all, a justification based on consent of the people, which led to issues about trying to move uh, people wanting more political power and even more economic power. There was a sense that science, philosophy, reason would replace religious understandings of the world, but then you could maintain some kind of rational core of moralism to make sure that people within a society were well behaved toward each other. Okay, so that, that was what I was getting at last time. And all these things are going to play into the development of socialism coming into the 19th century. That is, as we move from the late 1700s and the revolutions in America and in France around the same time into the early 1800s, those things are going to develop further. And at the same time, and this is also important, you had a historical development of the beginnings of industrial capitalism. Now, there had been forms of capitalism that were mostly based on commercial activities, that is buying and selling. You would make a financial profit by buying things in one place and selling them in another, or simply going to another part of the world and taking stuff from the people there and then taking them back to uh, the more European in, to the European society and selling them there. So commercial activity had gained a profit and was a form of capitalism. But here we had early industrial capitalism at first on a very 
small scale compared to now, but it was one in which owners brought together a number of workers to um, cooperate together to produce things and introduce new forms of technology to the process of producing products. So this was bringing capitalism not only to buying and selling, but to the actual production of goods and even agricultural products. So we had early industrial capitalism and the resistance of workers to the changes that they were experiencing. One of them was the sense of de-skilling that they became cogs in a machine rather than having a highly developed set of skills for say carpentry or metalworking or something. And they felt like they were forced to work long hours for relatively less money and under the authority of a boss rather than their own free people and how they conducted their business. So there's a lot of um, resistance towards this new development on the part of working people in the form of strikes and various other forms of resistance and opposition to the kinds of, um, the kinds of labor they were forced to compete with and then join as the era developed. So we had, first of all, during the early 1800s, the uh, expansion of industrial capitalism and workers' resistance to this on a larger and larger scale growing throughout Europe. And second of all, we had the expansion of the idea of democracy, more people demanding the right to vote, both in the United States and in England, and working people then wanting to use that right to vote to, to pursue their economic interests as well as whatever their political interests might have been. Um, and coming out of the revolutions were also people who wanted to further these revolutions by bringing it toward economic relations and make, allowing ordinary people have more control over economic relations. Or really, that came a little bit later. It was more the sense that this new capitalist economy should benefit the ordinary people and not make their life harder in the way it seemed to be as society increased its ability to produce things people seemed to be getting poorer and having more miserable lives and uh, there was there was a sense that something bad was happening so you had a intelligentsia developing who were using the new methods of or the invention of methods of social science to try to understand this economic and social change that was going on and then use it to guide society towards something better. So these three currents, workers' resistance to early capitalism, the movement toward greater democracy, both in the political sphere and in the economic sphere, and the revolutionaries who want to further, um, uh, further social change, particularly a number of people who had more intellectual backgrounds than um, working class backgrounds, and they were developing theories of social science to better understand how the world, the changing world was functioning, and what could be done to make it better. So it was the sense that social engineering was possible, just like James Madison had developed a constitution to try to social, socially engineer class relations in the United States, and did a good job of trying to prevent democratic formations. Uh, still to this day, it's hard to get large mass parties to take on the cause of working people. Uh, and Thomas Jefferson's idea that you could educate people and, and into a more rational society. These were further developed by uh, 
people who had the who were educated, not necessarily always associated with academia, but people who were of a social status where they had more of an educational background, began developing ideas of social science and wanting to use it to apply to changing the society, this new developing capitalist society that they saw happening all around them. You have here the early socialists like Robert Owen, and he was from Scotland, and also uh, he had an influence in England and America and other places. He was a business owner who then tried to develop workers' co-ops, thinking, well, it was better for the workers to own their own factories and to run them in common. Uh, so he had ideas about that, and he tried to gain patronage and support for creating these new forms of uh, working organizations. You had others. Another one was St. Simonian or St. Saint, Saint Simon or Simon. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I think it was French. Uh, he had a lot of ideas about historical development and how we were moving toward what he called a new Christianity. That is, you would supplant the religious element of Christianity with the, the sense that we were moving toward a better world, but one which was going to be created by social science rather than the return of Christ or something supernatural like that. Um, so he was also regarded as a socialist because he had ideas about how to organize this new society. And there were others like that. So that was early socialism. And you saw the development of these various currents that um, all had a role to play in what finally developed in the mid-1800s. In the mid-1800s, you had the consolidation of a lot of this stuff going on at the same time. Marx is one of the big figures here. He uh, was a graduate student in philosophy in what later became Germany. I guess he was in Prussia. Uh, and he studied Hegel, as I said last week, and he turned Hegel on his head. He developed a social science, which wasn't based on the development of reason and better ideas through history, but the development of class relations and conflict between them that was moving us toward a finally classless society. And he thought the best way to um, move this, this uh, understanding forward and actually work toward this changed society, help it along and guide it, was to take his ideas to working people who were already organizing to, in defense of their lives, in defense of uh, their standard of living and their ability to live meaningful lives. So the combination of the workers' movement, the social scientific methods as they saw them at the time, and um, a, 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 an acceptance of democracy. Marx really thought that um, he could join forces with those who were trying to create new democratic republics or constitutional republics, I should say, and get the right to vote to working people. And then they could use this as a tool to move history along towards the final um, change toward a communist society. The idea was that working people outnumber property owners so that if they could gain the right to vote and then use that in a party which had the right type of ideological foundations, scientific understanding of society and social change, they can then start to move toward a more socialist society which would eventually result in a communist society in which property ownership was abolished 
I'm starting to lose my voice here a little bit. Let me have a sip of tea. Marx wasn't the only one on this track. Another important figure who was actually more important than Marx in the mid-1800s was Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, another Frenchman. He was actually a working person who became more of a um, intellectual or part of the intelligentsia, became a journalist and a printer, wrote books. Uh, his ideas were in some ways similar to Marx and in some ways very different. Now, he represents the beginnings of the anarchist socialist tradition, which came into conflict, personal conflict in the case of Proudhon and Marx, and then conflict in the movements that developed out of their thinking, as well as other contributions to those thoughts. So Proudhon was also appealing to working people. He was also trying to develop a more um, reasoned and scientific understanding of society and how to move forward towards the future. But he did not trust political change as the avenue towards establishing the new society. What he thought needed to happen was more on the level of working people taking control over their own lives directly through the organization of uh, labor unions and mutual aid societies where they would help each other and uh, worker cooperatives where workers finally gained control of these new manufacturing type organizations and facilities. And then they could network with each other across countries and around the world to create this new society. So he eschewed or rejected the political approach that Marx was following. He also re refused any concept of violent revolution. He thought this would be a more slow and evolutionary change over time, whereas Marx still saw the need for revolution in the future that once uh, you gain political power, you had to completely change social relationships, or even that it might take a revolution to create the conditions for having a political uh, democracy in the first place. And certainly you'd have to have some kind of revolutionary force to change societies that were uh, more peasant-based. So he saw a role for violent revolution. Proudhon, not so much. Proudhon criticized Marx. Marx criticized Proudhon. Uh, Proudhon had a more moral type philosophy. He was very uh, impressed with the some of the um, the inspirational qualities of Christianity in that it had an element of social justice in it. And the same as, uh, say, Madison and Jefferson saw that a moral philosophy could be subtracted from Christianity and let out all the religious elements. Proudhon thought this element of working toward justice could also be extracted from the Christian tradition and made the moving force or the motivating force of working people and those who were also allied with them to try to create this revolutionary process and keep it moving forward. So he rejected Marx's elaborate scientific, scientific in the terms of the time, um, ideology. He saw Marx as too dogmatic and authoritarian and uh, because Marx wanted his, he thought his philosophy was very scientific and should be the guiding force. And he wanted to gain some power within the movement to make sure that he prevailed. Um, so there's a lot of conflict between them. I think I said Proudhon was a early figure within the anarchist movement. 
and uh, people followed his lead for you know years afterwards, centuries and decades, and still today. And in one of my earlier episodes, I talked about how those two figures, uh, the ideas of Marx and the ideas uh, like of Proudhon with anarchism, could be reconciled today and are slowly being reconciled instead of diametrically opposed to each other. So both of them were, were working towards the same ends and there was a conflict and rivalry between them. This is the beginnings of socialism. And of course, as we know, uh, Marx became much more well-known in history. He, uh, he outlived Proudhon, he was about 10 years older and his organizing ability led to the creation of a lot of Marxist parties, particularly in Germany. He, he was no longer in Germany, he was in exile in Britain at the time. And Engels, his, his colleague in his work, was around for another year, uh, 11 years or so after Marx's death. So he continued this work in helping to found these parties, which became a big um, part of the socialist movement, the more visible part of the socialist movement, whereas anarchists did not have success, such success in like demonstrating visible progress. There was a lot of movement toward anarchist ideas in, say, down in Italy and other parts of Europe, and not so much in the central parts that were more industrialized, like, uh, oh, Germany, France, England even, although Marx had a little less influence in England. They followed a similar path that Marx had been recommending into politics. So we have uh, these two developing movements uh, in different places and uh, you know splitting apart over time. But what I wanna get back at here is how um, these three elements of democracy and religion or morality and um, uh, workers as the driving force Class conflict is the driving force of this process have fared in the years since then. And I think each has become somewhat problematic, which is setting me up for talking a little more about the 20th century, or a lot more about the 20th century, since I barely mentioned it, and the development of religious understandings in the, in the uh, 20th century civil rights movements, for example, where religion was a big motivating uh, force within that. So... Let me go to um, first, democracy. Democracy, or you know, the idea that people were the source of political authority became and has become more problematic as we become more aware of how the institutions that are tr supposed to translate people's will into some kind of um, collective force can be perverted or fail in their mission. We know a lot more now about how different political methods can prevent or uh, facilitate workers' participation and workers' ability to organize. We know how the American Constitution can uh, block democratic progress. Uh, we know how the working class itself has split over various roads in uh, how to do, how to, how to move forward towards what their goals are. Um, I think I've segued already into the workers. So how have the workers done as the driving force of socialism? Well, we got a couple of problems here. One is that workers are often looking just for a better standard of living and a more, a, a less stressful work experience. 
and are often content with that if they can get it, rather than moving on towards some kind of social, complete social reworking. That is, working people and intellectuals have not always seen eye to eye in the goals of the socialist movement. Workers are more apt to stop with having strong trade unions that can gain them better hours, better benefits, better working conditions, and not necessarily interested in trying to go beyond that. Whereas a lot of the intellectuals involved in the socialist movement would say that's insufficient. It's not going to hold up over time and you need to create more of a mass movement to keep things moving forward. Simplification there, but a sense that workers and intellectuals are not always on the same page and that intellectuals were in fact part of the driving force of the socialist movement. It wasn't just the workers wanting to counter the experience they were having as workers in a capitalist economy. It was also intellectuals that were trying to drive this forward. So when Marx is saying that it's not ideas that drive history, it's class conflict, I look at it and I have to say it's somewhat of both. Marx himself, although he said morality wasn't sufficient motivation, for uh, making this happen, that people had to understand their material interests and organize around that. His own system relied a lot on a kind of hidden moral argument, which was that people were exploited by capitalist relations, which is kind of an argument about justice. It, it is what hits people at that sense of indignation that they're being wrong, that if they're, the value of their labor is being stolen from them, and now in the pockets of the capitalists, there's kind of a moral indignation in that that helps drive people's actions to do something about it, right? So it wasn't just material interest. It was this understanding of how this was unjust and morally wrong that helped fuel some of the fire in the socialist movement. So I think Marx and Proudhon had some, uh, both had some insights into the way this would work, that it would take both a working class movement and a compatible socialist movement with a compatible socialist understanding of where the workers movement should go, along with a, um, a moral argument that was appealing to people and could motivate them to do the work they had to do to move this forward. Um, another thing about the workers movement is that it's now so fragmented into different classes You've got not only what we typically think of as working people who work largely with their hands and their backs doing, say, construction work or factory work or something like that. you got a heck of a lot of people that are in professional, managerial, uh, white-collar work. And a lot of those, as well as public employees, have pensions. So they're both capitalists and they're workers. They have both uh, an interest in their the value of their portfolio, their pension portfolio rising by exploiting workers and a stake in how their own working conditions are. So there's kind of a, a split in whether or not people are willing to go as far as to say we need to expropriate the capitalists when they themselves are to at least a minor degree capitalists as well. So working class is not as clear as the driving uh, force because working class is not just workers, it's also workers who spend their days working for somebody else for a salary or a wage, but also have some property, even if it's minor degree. Homes as well. Homes can be a, a type of commodity and a type of uh, financial asset. Um, and also the fact that most of the 
big socialist revolutions in the history since then have occurred in places where workers, industrial workers, uh, there were very few of them. Capitalism hadn't developed so far. You take Russia or Cuba or China, they were largely agricultural societies and the revolutions were fueled by a lot of peasants, not workers. So the idea that workers are the primary driving force and uh, material interests are primary driving force are more problematic now. Wouldn't reject them, they play important roles, but you have to temper that a little bit by saying that history has other influences playing on it, not just our economic uh, relations around production, or the ideas that we develop that are often, you know, the only ones we accept are those that are compatible with our experience of work. And I think Marx was right in that respect as well, that there's a lot of correspondence between the things we think and the position we play in the economic system. But also other contingent factors like, you know, pandemics or technological innovation or, you know, major climate changes, which happened not just now, but in the Middle Ages made big changes in history. So a lot of different things can impinge on history and the direction it goes in. It's not as clear that it's going to go in one direction based on class conflict alone. So that's another area where we need to do some rethinking. Um, finally, social science as a non-religious and um, uh, a way of reconstructing society has had um, some challenges. First of all, the concept of science itself has moved on. Natural science is now less um, materialistic. It sees relations. I'm talking about like the Einsteinian revolution and quantum physics. I'm not going to try to go into that because I don't understand it. But as, as I picked up over the years, I think is that human consciousness actually has some role to play in how molecules, uh, what we're able to observe at a, at a, at a very, minor, um, very small level of material reality, we have these strange phenomena going on, like quarks and photons, or these things I don't understand. Uh, but they behave peculiarly. It doesn't seem as materialistic or as mechanical as it seemed in the mid-1800s. Now it seems like like the relationship between time and um, what we see as physical reality and human consciousness and what we perceive as reality is much more complicated than uh, science seemed to be. And social science turned to religion. There was a lot of developments in understanding religion, but I wanna go into more in my next episode. So point of this is that as socialism developed, it took particular shape but then in the hundred or so years since then, probably even more, um, some problems have arisen and people have tried to revise Marx or correct Marx or add to Marx, as well as these other types of things, improve democracy, improve our understanding of religion. And that's where I'm going to head in my next episode. Uh, thanks for listening like, subscribe, hit the notification button for the video, or if you're listening to this on a podcast, subscribe there as, as well. If you got something out of this, tell other people of similar mind about it. Uh, I hope I can build up a, a viewership and then bring on some uh, people with things to say about this whole process that have written interesting books or had 
or are actively involved in political movements that can shed light on the things I've been talking about. So again, this is Political Dharma. I'm Alan Zundell. Our opening and closing music is from my friend, Patty Rose. And see you next time. Thanks a lot. With ease, I see the chains are breaking. We gained our focus. The moves we're making will prove to determine our self-worth as a passenger on this vehicle. Earth.